0: lgbtiq rights are black rights we have always been here black queers we will always be here
3: the only thing i have in common with this character is that she's black this does not look like me or sound like me i'm gary foley i'm Francesca ramsey this is amir rahman and you're listening to the race card
4: Hello, you're listening to The Race Card on SYN 90.7 FM. The time is 3.02 and I'm Poppy Perrault, your host for this afternoon's show. Before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of the country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land in which we meet and pay respect to the elders both past and present. This land was never ceded and the processes of colonisation occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at volunteerism, Soretti Kadir's chapter book, um, Siyane, and her challenges as a poet in the creative sphere. My co-host for this week is...
5: Ahmed Youssef, that's uh, that's me. And Um,
4: today we have a special guest.
6: Claire Land. Hi, everyone.
4: She's the author of a new book entitled Decolonising Solidarity, which talks about how non-Indigenous people can create solidarity with our First Nations people. Um, So what made you write this book, Claire?
6: Well, I... As a student activist, I met some amazing Aboriginal people at the University of Melbourne in about 97, 98. And um, that was the moment when I started to understand that I had a relationship with colonialism. I had no engagement with Australia as a colonised place until then. And so the first step for me was um, realising that I... I had to know what had happened here. And then I started to study as much as I could about that and also get involved with a student group which was um, educating ourselves and then educating people around us about um, Aboriginal political struggles. And uh, from there, yeah, I just kind of got to uh, got told some of the politics of how to be a supporter within that, um, a supporter of Aboriginal struggles. And... Um, yeah then it's just been a journey of wanting to know more about that so I could you know be a stronger ally myself um, What are some of the messages and themes you try to explore in the book well firstly it's got quite a lot of it's got a hist- some history in it about the history of aboriginal aboriginal struggles in the southeast of Australia, which is where the book is based um, it's got a history of um, of solidarity and support action um, to give people the people nowadays a sense of, I guess, our own history as supporters. And um, in terms of the ideas in the book, it's really, I guess, to discuss the dilemmas that come up in the sort of life life cycle of an ally. So, particularly middle class white people, have, whom I'm one, um, there'll be a life cycle where. Um, you might hear an Aboriginal person speak, become incredibly passionate and like upset about the injustice and really want to do something um, and then give that a go and then hit some kind of crisis point where you're somehow you're getting the message that you're not doing it right. Um, and then some people will then feel upset and and, and withdraw, still really want to be supportive but not know how to do it and other people will stick with it for years and years and years. And so starting to see that life cycle happening myself and seeing Aboriginal people who'd educated me, having to educate people just like me, you know, every single new person they met, they had to do the same thing, um, made me want to um, write something that could be shared with others um, to get some of that background knowledge.
5: Um, I remember meeting you for the first time at a, uh, I guess it, you, you held a workshop, at Trades Hall about how non-Indigenous people can show solidarity and social support that isn't necessarily, I guess, centering themselves in Indigenous struggles. Um, And I guess, has this been a a book you've been wanting to write, I guess, since the beginning of your, um, I guess, your journey along understanding and um, learning about um, Indigenous struggles?
6: Uh, It's something that I uh, I, I decided to... To want to, to want to do a PhD on this in about 2005. So that was – I'd been involved for about seven years by then and, yeah, that's – I did intend to write something that could be shared so that would be a book or a, a kind of handbook or something. Um, but, yeah, it was – that was an amazing thing at Trades Hall. The occasion was the national sort of launch of Black Nations Rising And I think, or the or the movement itself. It was actually um, war
5: itself. It was war um, showing um, discussing themselves as well as showing everyone um, the the uh, the new quarterly magazine they were Mm. starting, Black Nations Rising. And um, I found it was it was very interesting how um, they were having a workshop by themselves talking about I guess their own kind of stuff, being Indigenous Australians, um, navigating identity, and then we were in the other room. Um, talking about how we can support them, which I found was a very good kind of dichotomy of, mm. and, and and kind of um, centering different spaces and, mm. and how things were uh, were separated, but still for for a given purpose.
6: Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and now it's just so self conscious with the worries of the Aboriginal resistance Very self conscious about wanting um, you know allies to to discuss that practice of being an ally in parallel to their their discussions about their own struggle so yeah it's it was um, I it was guess
5: nice an- another question I want to ask is what are some of the steps you you talk about in your book about decolonizing that solidarity and um, becoming a better ally to indigenous people um, in a in a very i guess anti indigenous anti black space and government mm.
6: well I just find that um, one of the it, there's been a few a few challenges um, presented to to allies um, that I've seen. So, um, you know, when there's been a conversation that an Aboriginal person has spoken at, um, I've often noticed that there'll be some challenges suggested, which are, one, that if you want to support Aboriginal people, you don't really need to go rushing and finding an Aboriginal person to support. The first thing is to look in the mirror and to understand your own culture, your own motivations and um, understanding where you're from, you know, that's a really important step. And um, so that's about self-reflexiveness um, and self self-criticism, I guess, and and self knowledge and cultural knowledge, um, and of yourself. And then there's also a challenge to not just be obsessed with Aboriginal people. Um, so it's to say why. You know if you want to support Aboriginal people, what is the problem that is what is creating the problem for Aboriginal people and what is wrong with your own society because Aboriginal people have been running self help survival programs, um, realizing amazing community controlled spaces, and you know they're inviting us to. Do the same, like sort out our own society, which is so hierarchical. And particularly for me, that means that the dominant culture in Australia. So there's an invitation there to get a moral, broad, much broader moral and political framework um, than just wanting to, in a way, be redeemed of the, the guilt of inheriting colonialism um, <laughs> by kind of making up with the, an Aboriginal person.
4: I think yeah. another thing to tie into that is also knowing when to take a step back and letting Aboriginal voices be heard and letting, you know, realising when you're taking up too much space in their in their circles and letting, yeah, just letting their voices be heard.
6: Mm, yeah, definitely. And I just, I'm learn, learning all the time and I'm involved in a little study group called Decolonize, Allies Decolonizing and um, some, there's some great anarchists in that group and one of them said a little adage that I've clamped onto since, which is that when people of colour are speaking, white people need to shut up, essentially. When people of colour are being attacked, you do the opposite. And that's, you know, so there's a balance between stepping back, but also acting very powerfully when it's the right moment to do that. Okay, we're going to head
4: to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on zero four two seven seven six seven seven six seven or tweet at us at the Race Card. You can also follow um, Claire on Twitter, um, your Twitter handle is um, at Claire underscore Land. Thank you. There it is.
0: What is racism? No idea mate. No idea?
6: Depends who you're asking. My friend will tell you I'm very racist. (laughs) No you're not. What's my definition of racism? Well doesn't it? People, racist people are racist people. They don't like any other colours, nationalities. Yeah. Thank you.
2: What is racism to me? Something stupid. I don't agree with it. Don't like it. Don't think it should exist.
0: What's racism? Um, I don't know,
5: racial prejudice. What about
0: you? It's just ignorance and hate. Thanks. Um, fear of other races.
5: What about your friend, you know? Fear of other races. <laughs> you can't copy my answer.
4: you're listening to sin 90.7 fm and on and we're on the race card remember you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427 767 767 or tweet at us at race card. Now we're going into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's happened during the past week. This past week, Soreti Kadir released her new chapter book, Siyane, which means longing in Oromo. However, there's a lack of representation in Australia's creative sphere. A few months ago, freelance journalist Aisha Marfo wrote in The Monthly, Australia's media has a cultural diversity problem. 28% of Australians were born outside the country, Yet a 2013 report put the percentage of editorial staff at the ABC from a non-English speaking background at 8.3%. This figure had barely increased in the last six years. We're going to be speaking to Soretti, who's a spoken word artist based in Melbourne, and talk to her about the challenges of writing, performing and finding a space in a poetry and literary scene that lacks diversity. Hi Soretti, are you here?
1: Yes, I am. Hello.
4: Hi, thank you so much for coming on air today. Um, no worries, you yeah. for having me. No worries at all. So I guess um, we'll go with a bit, bit of background. Um, what is your um, book about, firstly?
1: Uh, so Siyane is a collection of poetry, um, and there is a real particular theme across, I guess, the poems, but they all do reflect life experience, worldview on a various number of issues, family. Um, so a lot of interpersonal stuff, a lot of, um, I guess, my... Yeah, experiences with identity, with politics, with work, with space, with everything related to being black, African, a woman, um, you know, a refugee, a migrant. So a lot of things that have just, I guess, I've experienced throughout my entire life is reflected in the poetry um, that I put in Um So
5: sort Rithi, of I guess the question I want to ask you is, how have you navigated um, being this, um, I guess, this very white poetry, literary scene and making your voice heard and finding an audience?
1: Um, I think what really helped me and the way I actually started out in the scene was amongst a very small community of black African poets in Melbourne. Um, And it was within this community that I was able to develop skills in performance and writing as well. Um, And general confidence as well in actually believing in what you're saying and what you're writing and knowing that it's good enough you know, for a larger audience. Um, so it was amongst that small-knit community that I was able to develop, I guess, everything that it's taken for myself to be able to present my work in these quite polarising contexts. Um, so I think that for me it was definitely um, yeah, having access to people who also were experiencing similar things in the space and in the scene um, and being able to learn from our, our, our different but similar experiences um, and also by supporting each other and just, creating a community based on love um, has been, and being a part of that and then being able to go from that into the general space has been something that has been really valuable to me.
5: I guess my, um, I, I, um, you've performed recently, and I, and I remember one of your poems, The, Poly- the Politics of Your Poetry. Could you uh, maybe explain that for us?
1: Yeah, so that poem, The Politics of My Poetry, um, I wrote that poem specifically because uh, after one open mic a couple of months ago, Somebody had come up to me and said, you know, I really like your poetry and the way that you perform. But, you know, I just found that your stuff was a little bit too political. Um, And I thought this was pretty absurd considering the fact that every writer or a lot of people who come into these spaces and are writers are going to be writing from their own realities. And the reality is my life is extremely political in the way that I'm viewed and represented and the way that I identify um, is often very political. And it also goes on um, for me in that poem to explain that Poetry, for me, or my poetry specifically, is not a conversation to always be had. It's my statement as an artist, as a poet, um, and it's not something that... I think that in itself adds a protective layer to, to being able to, you know, um, I guess, survive that type of commentary because it can be quite um, hurtful or um, attacking in a sense, but knowing that I do this for the sake of being able to say what I want the way I want it and being extremely unapologetic in that is what I was trying to illustrate in the poem. Yeah, the politics of my poetry.
5: How have you found the reaction to to your poetry and your chapbook? Because I think you've been performing around twelve to eighteen months right now.
1: Yeah, something like that. Um, my poetry, generally, like within the Australian space, has been pretty well received. Um, so that's been really, really exciting. And. The amount of support um, that I've gotten from my community as well, so the general Black African community in Melbourne and in Australia, and also the Oromo community in Australia and um, across the world has been, it's actually blown me away. I had didn't really, I didn't really not just expect it, but it just wasn't, I just it didn't have that in my, I guess, long term expectation of what people were going to react. And specifically to the chat book. Um, I think that it's been received quite well. It's only been out for a week, so I can't really say much right now, but um, the way my family have received it has been pretty huge to me. They've just, the night of the launch was the first time they had ever heard me perform, and the book was the first time they'd ever read any of my work. Um, so that has, that was quite special, and um, generally i found that people have received it really well. I haven't had any heard anything um, negative or, or of that sort yet, but um, I think the book illustrates myself in a in a in a context of many people that haven't seen me before. So being surprised by it is something that I've also had. Um and yeah, really welcomed.
5: I, I guess what would you say to um poets, writers, creatives artists in general, um, who are who are starting off um in their journey as an artist and, and trying to navigate, I guess, identity in, in, in that sense and um as you said, your identity is politicized so therefore your art is Um, going to be political so how would you what would you give what advice would you give
1: them I think the first thing to establish is do you want to be an artist that is um, always trying to navigate the political discourse like do you actually want that is that something that brings your work to life if it is then remaining adamant in that is the most important thing, and whilst also finding a community that is able to support you in that endeavour is just as important. Um, But I think that it's not the responsibility on every artist of colour to always be political. I think it's a choice that you make, and if you don't want to make that choice, you have the right just like any other artist, to write about anything else that you want. Um, but if that, is, yeah, if, that is the, if that is what you want to do with your art, then making sure that you fully understand um, what it is you're talking about and how you relate to it and being completely relentless in, in, in you know, uh, communicating that message whilst also making sure that you're well-supported that, in that endeavor is 100% the advice that I would give to any artist of color.
4: Uh, How do you deal with the backlash and criticism that you may get from your peers? I mean, when you're a person of colour in any creative sphere, especially in one that lacks diversity, you're always put up for scrutiny. So how do you deal with that? Do you just brush it off or, you know, do you take it on board and sort of try to make them understand where you're coming from?
1: Um, I guess it's a little bit of both. I'm not too concerned, I think, with... Trying to make people understand um, where it is that I'm coming from. I think those that want to critically engage with this type of thinking are able to remove themselves from the context of which I'm speaking into. Specifically when I speak about whiteness and white people, I'm not attacking every single white person, and anybody who you know is actually about understanding where artists come from or understanding, I guess the intersectional relationships in struggles or whatever. Um are going to be able to see it that way, but for those who take it in a way that is attacking i'm not I'm honestly not too concerned about that and i um and I'm happy and I speak to that i think um in saying that um those who like I write for everybody, everybody can take something away from my work, but when you come across a piece or a piece of writing or a performance that you feel isn't really for you, then it's just not for you, and that's just the end of the story for me. I don't necessarily think it's something that I need to focus on too much because there is a very central reason and pivotal reason as to why I actually write and why I create. All
4: right. Thank you so much for the interview, Soretti. And you can follow Soretti on Twitter as well. And there's more information about her, her book there. We're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in or tweeting us at The
2: Race Card. I don't know I don't date white guys which is really weird but like it's just like it's not necessarily a decision I made it's just something that just sort of came and like I've noticed a pattern I guess.
4: (laughs) Um, Do you think the pattern is I don't know like a good good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah it's it's worked in my
2: favour I'd say yeah.
4: I don't know,
2: are you fascinated with people from certain cultures, more than others? Like uh, I like the Australian people here, they're really nice, yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe, so yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most, most people have like grandparents
5: come from Europe and stuff, so they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others?
2: Um, yeah, I think so, yeah <laughs> what,
5: what, would, what are they If feel you who feeling comfortable
2: with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people Yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or yeah, If they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie Then
1: it's a bit, a bit more comfortable <laughs> No worries, thank you The thing
0: we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first uh, I don't believe in religion, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religion is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect The other thing is, that one of them is religion, the other one is the
1: nationality For example, in Iranian cannot, uh,
0: there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare, but you know Actually, so the nationality, for example, in Iranian cannot uh, marry to for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I reached.
4: You're listening to Sin 90.7FM and we're on the Race card. Remember you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in or tweeting at us. A month ago, BuzzFeed released a video called "I'm a Muslim." But it wasn't taken well by some in the Muslim community, and some of our own co hosts on the show helped make another one.
0: I am Muslim, but I'm not angry. I'm a Muslim,
3: but I am angry. I am angry.
4: I'm angry. I'm a Muslim, but it's not my job to soothe your anxieties about what I choose to wear. I'm Muslim, but I don't have to justify my right to live here free
5: from racism.
0: I'm a Muslim, but I don't need to apologise for random acts of violence that have nothing to do with me. I'm Muslim,
5: but I don't hate Jews. I hate Zionism.
2: Which is a globally recognised form of racism.
5: I'm a Muslim, but it's not my job to educate you on the history of the Middle East or anywhere else. I'm a Muslim, but I don't care if you think it's weird that I believe in God.
4: I'm Muslim but I don't think the answer to corrupt Muslim governments is Western imperialism. I'm a Muslim but I don't need to prove my loyalty
5: to you or anyone else. I'm a Muslim and I wish the drones and bombs would stop in Somalia, Afghanistan, Syria,
4: Yemen,
0: Algeria, Iraq,
4: Palestine, Kashmir, Pakistan,
0: Chechnya, Libya.
4: I'm Muslim. And I'm living on land that was stolen from indigenous people.
0: I'm a Muslim, and I wish our leaders would stop refusing refugees from the countries they bomb.
5: I'm a Muslim, and I believe undocumented people have a right to dignity
1: and compassion.
0: I'm a Muslim, and I'm sick of my community being harassed by security agencies.
3: I'm Muslim, and I know when I read racist articles in the news...
2: I know it's going to lead to real violence against Muslims on the street, particularly women. I'm
4: Muslim and my faith tells me to stand up for myself
3: and others. I'm a Muslim
5: and my religion teaches me about the dangers of extreme wealth.
4: I'm a Muslim and my religion teaches me that people deserve fair wages. I'm Muslim and I don't think it's acceptable to publish racist satire about my faith.
5: I'm a Muslim and I think it's hard to make complex arguments about race, history, faith and culture in condense YouTube
0: videos. I'm a Muslim, but I don't think acting white will solve my problems with racism. (laughs)
4: Um, So there was a bit of a hiccup there. I forgot to introduce the video, but we just played it there. So we have one of the contributors to the video on the line now, Magan Magan. Your line at the very end, I don't think acting white will stop racism, has been circulating around. Why did you decide to help make the video?
0: Um, firstly, thanks for having me. No worries. Um, Yeah, I, well, I felt very much that the, the, the take on the video that was, you know, um, constructed by Amir Rahman, I felt very much that it was, it was an appropriate response to, um, a kind of. Um, expecting that Muslims should be or should, like, respond to the current political climate. Um, I don't know if it makes sense, but I just felt like it was a, a an important response to what the dominant culture expects of Muslims to be or to kind of present themselves.
5: So I guess you're saying um, you did the video, also I also did the video as well, uh, because you felt, why would, why did
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
5: and i like to smile um shouldn't they yeah. be every shouldn't those be expectations of every everyone why exactly. do muslims always have to uh come back and say i'm sorry for for this i have to explain my actions of the actions of many um that have nothing to do with me like, i think that's one of your uh, one of your lines um yeah. so yeah w- was are those some of the reasons why you decided to to do the video
0: yes yes um, and and you know the the idea that I have to, or as a Muslim, that I have to kind of show things like simple things that I think that I things that I think is quite simple and ordinary, but because I'm Muslim, it can be seen as extraordinary. Or like like something I remember one of the one of the um, people in the other video said, you know, I'm a Muslim, and this is like a, a general thing that I find with. Um, people, Muslims in the media, or the kind of the kind of Muslims that uh, the dominant culture wants to um, kind of parade, are like Muslims who will take on, you know, I uh, who will say, for example, you know, I'm a I'm I'm Muslim, but I'm but I'm happy. Like that idea for me is really strange. Um, you know, being exceptional because you're a nice Muslim, and and you know, um, just just falling into these kinds of binaries, or or just not being allowed to just be average, or just you know, just is.
5: So I guess what you're saying is, um, Muslims always expected, say for example, just being a regular person isn't isn't enough. You have to um, always overex. Over um, explain yourself, um, and and in that video, the sense of saying I'm a Muslim and I'm not angry, as if the expectation is I'm always angry.
0: Yes, yes. Or being exceptional for not being angry, or being exceptional for for doing things like I don't know, I, as simple as smiling. You know, as simple as oh, I you know, I don't litter. Therefore, I'm an exceptional Muslim. I'm not like the other Muslims, um, and I also want to make it clear that I, um, I, the reason why one of the reasons why I participated was not because I wanted to, um, you know, make the other Muslims on the other video look bad or, or be or like because it, it wasn't really about them. It was it's more about, um, you know, I guess representation and showing um that look I'm muslim but you know I don't ha- you know I don't have to apologize for anything I don't have to um you know
4: <laughs> do you think in a way it was a response to sort of the divide that the perception that people have that there are good muslims and bad muslims and the video was a way to show that Muslims are complex people from a range, you know, diverse and like a wider range, ray of people. They're not just, they don't just fit into these two binaries. They're more than that. So, and the Buzzfeed video kind of skims over that. So, I guess your response was kind of um trying to yeah show that there is these are we are complex people. Um, sorry, not me, but you're complex people, and you, you know, and there's more depth to you and more part to your being than just being a Muslim.
0: Yes, I mean, yeah, precisely. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, we're not just... Yeah, either or. You know, we, we, we are we are complex is essentially one of the the things, but also, you know, I do, I, I do have a right to be in a safe space, be in a safe environment. I do have a right to live in Australia. Um, you know, as one of the quotes was, I've got to live here with, her, you know, free from racism. You know, I guess for me it's just about just being, like, just being allowed to just be without my Muslimness, you know, being reacted to, whether it's a good or a bad thing. So, yeah.
4: Well, thank you so much for coming on air today. Um, You can view, the video is circulating around social media. So if you haven't seen it, I would highly suggest you all see it. And there's a bit of self-promotion for our hosts, um, Ahmed and, and Amina. So we're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427 767 767 or tweet us at the race card.
5: Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think um, it means?
0: I wouldn't even know, no. haven't got a clue. Don't know.
5: Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked. Um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. Alright, so, no, five seconds. Five seconds, so good for it. All right. So, what does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What does what? White
1: privilege.
5: Uh, there is
4: not such a thing, man. Not for me. Not for you. No, know, man. We are all the same. Nice.
5: That's uh, all. We bodies red. We're all the same.
2: All brothers. Uh,
5: what does the term white privilege mean to you? Ah, uh, well, privilege of white people, I guess. Yeah. So. Is this like racism kind of stuff?
3: What your head. Oh, I guess. Centrelink.
2: White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty
3: or privileges that the white people have here. I'm, I mean, we're talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume.
5: What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um Wow, that's a that's a pretty hard hitting question. Um
2: I suppose white
4: privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, Uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh,
3: a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them.
4: And we're back on the race card. Um, This week we look at our feature, Voluntourism. So our newest contributor, Arun Lekshmi explores the topic in her interview with Karen Zhu over the week. Um, we all have our, you know, we all have seen someone who has gone overseas to volunteer and, you know, some of us may have actually been there to do, you know, aid work or something like that in, you know, in a developing country. So we're going to explore the sort of issues that come with that and the effects it has on those communities.
2: So hi, um, we're here with Karen Zhu. She's currently... Um living in Australia, but she's an American studying marginalized communities and how they form and break apart. And she recently had um, two years experience with Teach for China, which is a non-for-profit organization, kind of akin to the teaching programs in Australia, such as Teach for Australia, where I uh, basically a bunch of high performing academic types go into rural areas and teach for free so basically we're just trying to i guess unpack in this interview volunteer tourism and i guess the kinds of pros and cons that come along with that and also the power dynamics that can manifest within these organizations obviously to do with race but also class and intercultural issues within china as a specific community so firstly karen um I was just wondering, just generally, what were your experiences
3: with Teach for China? (laughs) So, my experiences (laughs) in China as a teacher, um, like, when I was in my school, when I was hanging out with my kids, that was great, and I really enjoyed myself, and I hope that my kids also really enjoyed the time that they got with me. My experiences with the organization were not so great. Um, I openly critiqued the organization while I was still a part of the organization, um, and There were repercussions. They tried to toss me out a few times because, you know, like once those ideas start spreading, people start questioning, like, why are we here? Are we actually doing anything? And is this treatment that we're, that we are getting from the higher-ups and also the treatment that our children are getting from the organization, is it fair? Um, And, you know, a lot of times, obviously the answer is no, it's not at all. Mm.
2: I guess, like, um, in terms of fairness, what would be aims of this organization in general? Um...
3: That's hard to say because if you, I mean, being honest here, you know, because the mission statement of the organization is always about like, oh, like we're here to serve these children who like yeah. are in some of the poorest parts of China. You know, they don't, you know, like they don't have proper nutrition. They don't have running water. They you know they don't have this, they don't have that. To start sort of like our own baby NGOs within the organization to start our own initiatives um, to be like, you know, you can solve these problems. You can do this, you can do that. Um, and really placing sort of the locus of the problem on the fellows and also on the students, and not necessarily on the larger structural issues that we had no chance of addressing. We had no power in addressing.
2: Yeah, I mean, like the Trust Fund guy who started it. Is that
3: indicative of the kind of people who get involved with this kind of volunteer tourism? It very much is. Um, I mean, at least within Teach for China, on the foreign side, on the American side of the program, More than half of the fellows were wealthy and white, Um, and of the other half, um, predominantly American-born Chinese, so ABCs, Mm -hmm. and then a few black people. But everyone graduated from one of the top universities in America, probably from one of the top 16 universities in America, which kind of tells you what sort of class that they're looking at. Basically, all these bougie motherfuckers from different (laughs) backgrounds coming to for rural China, where many of these children are Chinese ethnic minorities. And that's part of the discrimination that they face, and that's part of their economic exploitation. And then this, this organization behind us keeps on saying, you have the answers, you should start these initiatives and these baby NGOs to figure out these kids' problems.
2: And, like, I guess not much happens because the, like, skill difference between, like, you know, newly new graduates from these, like, Ivy League schools and actual teachers on the ground is just, like, too big a gulf.
3: None of us on... The foreign side and basically none of the people on the Chinese fellow side spoke the language that was actually being spoken in the classrooms, which was not Mandarin. It was not Mandarin. It was the local language. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, like no one came from teaching programs. No one came from a natural teaching background Um Whereas, you know, you have top local teachers who have been teaching for 10, 20 years and who know the sort of state exams and whatnot through and through. They also know these children through and through and the cultural context through and through. But, you know, like the money that was that teacher China would raise millions every year in order to support the program. Um, and, you know, like there were so many ways that the money could have been spent that could have actually helped these children's lives. Like, for example, bulking up the pay of local teachers so that way they would stay in the poor, like, more rural areas instead of flocking to the rich city schools. Um, Or, you know, providing the funds for basic programs that would address the children's nutritional needs um, and, and, like, their sort of transportation needs.
2: It's like economically with all the millions of dollars funneling and I guess from America mostly and I guess maybe from rich Chinese, um... Like, where did the money go? Was it mostly just to, like, subsidize the costs of, like, I guess, fellows who were living there? Or was it mostly just advertising?
3: But most of the money supporting fellows went to foreign fellows because things like covering our airfares um, to and from America. Um, Things like getting our visas, which were very, very expensive.
2: I mean, I guess that's the tourism aspect in there.
3: Yeah. Um, And then on the fourth side, at least one third of the cohort dropped out. On the Chinese side, I think the retention was a bit better, but not by much, because I think over time people eventually realized, like, oh, I actually can't do anything to help these kids. If anything, my presence might be actually making things worse. Um, and that my presence is part of this larger system where, you know, the people who do have power, you know, first, like, to give sort of a recap of nonprofit industrial, co- non-profit industrial uh, complex, Mm-hmm. You know, it starts with how wealthy capitalists steal wages to make profits. And then the, this money is diverted out of public funds and taxes and into tax-sheltered foundations. So, like Teach for China or Teach for America and whatnot. Um, and then sort of an, of an offshoot of that is that they then control dissent through the grant-making processes because you have to write grants. And the people on the ground have to write grants, have to try to get money somehow, Um And then that, in return, makes money. There's a payout. There's a benefit to the system. Um, So Teach for China was very much a part of that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess,
2: what was the relationship between Teach for China, the Chinese government, and also the rural schools? Like, was there a positive relationship, or was it just
3: manifestly (laughs) negative? (laughs) It was one of those things where I think um, Teach for China looks very good. It sounds very good on paper, but um, Teach for China has served many, many regions in China. And I think there's only been one region that has consistently asked for Teach for China back. Um, all the other regions, it was after a few years, we stopped getting the visas. They started kicking us out. Oh, uh, wow.
2: <laughs> I guess... um my next I guess like basically the picture of volunteer tourism and vo- or volunteerism that most people know is like I guess a really a picture of like white saviorism. So like young white people go to like nondescript African countries and like do <laughs> yeah. menial tasks. But I think something that I think what's more unique about your story about Teach for China is that there is sort of this like um it's it's not just white people saving brown people or black people. If if there are people from Chinese background who are going in and might be getting more disillusioned with the process, I guess, was that your experience? Did you find that like, sort of, you were more critical because of your identity?
3: A lot of the Chinese fellows found my critiques very surprising and many of them did not agree with my critiques because I do come from marginalized background from within America. Um, whereas, you know, the Chinese fellows were at the top of the social pyramid within China. Um, Mm -hmm. Personally, for me, one of the things that surprised me about the experience was how much bitterness I started feeling towards Mm. wealthy Chinese people. Um, Not just those within my own program, but the tourists that I would see in the region um, and how they would Mm. sort of treat the children and they would treat just the locals and the um, the local culture as products and as products to be consumed. That is really interesting to
2: see. I mean, I guess how it does function differently domestically, I guess. And I I think that's probably the same experience that a lot of people have even within, like, Teach for Australia, which is
3: a very similar program here. Mm -hmm. It's, like, it's a form of cultural imperialism, um, to put it frankly. Um, And it's, yeah, it's just really disheartening to see. That's, like, that's all I can say, because monkey see, monkey do. At the end of the day, it's the same it's the same few groups of people within societies, between societies that continue to get screwed over.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I guess finally to finish up, what advice would you give to anyone who wanted to get involved with this sort of work? I mean, would it just be a flat out don't get involved or is there like, is there
3: potential to be critical within these organizations to change them? There is not potential to be critical within these organizations to change them. I can flat out Mm -hmm. say that um, because I tried um, and they are very good at shutting you down. They are very good at trying to scare people into silence. Um, mm-hmm. So just don't do it. With this, I do have to note, I've had so many conversations with people like asking me, being like, hey, Karen, like I'm thinking of doing Teach for China or doing something similar to Teach for China. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, What would be your advice, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way that I found that you can really um, dissuade people with fair regularity is to tell them that this will impact your future career and not in good ways and not in ways you think. I guess finally, did you find that, I mean,
2: like, did you find, do you find like at least your experience in being critical has allowed you to like, send out a message about these kinds of organizations in like a positive and meaningful way to divert, um, I guess productivity and like resources
3: into the right directions? For me, uh, no. Sort of trying to counterbalance the effects of these programs it is really hard because so many people just want to feel like they're doing something good.
2: Um,
3: and that's part of, you know, like the whole system of how things work with this sort of on, tourism. Mm.
2: Is that what it's called? Yeah.
3: yeah. With this <laughs> volunteerism. Um, and um, it's important that these conversations keep happening and that like the scope of these conversations continue to widen so that, so that way more mainstream publications pick up on these conversations so that more people are including these conversations. Because I think That's the only way for these awareness to spread more and more because these NGOs come out and be like, hey, yeah, so uh, what we did wasn't really super effective. (laughs) That's never going to happen. You know, like Teach for China, not Teach for China, but Teach for America has spent literally millions upon millions upon millions of dollars into their marketing, into their so-called research divisions (laughs) to prove that they're an effective organization.
4: And that was our newest contributor, Arun Duthi, with her interview with Karinzu on voluntourism. So please tweet at us, what your views on voluntourism are? So I guess um, Claire and Ahmed in the studio. What I don't know. What can we first say about voluntourism? I think the concept of it is, it, you know, it's not that you can't go overseas and aid these communities. It's not that you can't do that. It just you have to realize the implications that you that you have, and there is a power structure of a Western person going over going overseas, trying to sort of save a community,
5: and also why are you going over, like, um, do you have any cultural ties to this place? Do you understand the certain, like, hierarchy um, that you'll create when you get there? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, and this is regarding a lot of Somali people moving back to Somalia and creating um, a and, and Somali, a Somali like, industry is growing through this, but also why and it, they're going there for the reason of resettling to the motherland. And understanding when they get there, there's going to be this imme- – like there will be a power dynamic uh, shift automatically because local Somali people that have lived there that are in um, poor to, to relatively poor situation in terms of um, finances and then you're coming and you're putting a major boost in in terms of uh, the economy and, and what have you. Uh, and then you're able to say, for example, if I wanted to go – if I – my mum and dad sold their house, I went to Somalia, we'd have up to $500,000 of Australian dollars to, to, to buy something in, in Somalia, and that is massive money. So understanding those power dynamics, and especially when you don't have any sort of cultural um, cultural significance to the place you're going to, understanding that that power dynamic is even more important. Mm.
6: And uh, it's clear land here. It just um, reminds me of something in that I came across in, in research for my book, which was a discussion of um, uh, the Jabaluka campaign, which was um, an anti-uranium mining campaign run by the um, Mirar people in um, of the Kakadu National Park. Um, but so this PhD sort of, kind of had a look at why there was... Um, tensions and dilemmas sort of existing in, in this relationship between environmentalists who supported the campaign or, or were also against the mine and, and the Mirar people. And one of them was about um, Greenies, perhaps when they go to support an Aboriginal campaign, they're kind of looking for a bit of a, an incentive or a bit of a, a kind of payment for that or re- reimbursement for that. And that can sometimes be about wanting to um, get a bit of insight into Aboriginal culture. Um, And that's a bit of a tourist sort of um, kind of like uh, impulse in people that they might not even realise that they actually are expecting something back from their activism. Uh, Yeah, so it reminds me a little bit of this tourism. And um, also, I guess,
5: when people do activism um, and who come from a position of power, whether it be class, race, um, gender or what have you, um, they're always expecting a tap on the shoulder Mm. Um, and, and getting that social capital, and I guess in, in all this discussion with volunteerism, also understanding that when you do activism, or when you do anything good, for example, you're doing it for the sake of doing something good and not mm. expecting that tap on the shoulder, you're a good ally, mm. you're a good um, person, and, and that sort of rhetoric.
6: Mm. And even being known and liked is something that people want back. I um, think, from that activism in some, time, some instances. Yeah. I think
4: there are also issues with, um, you know, companies and who profit from these volunteerism programs and there are issues where they'll send, you know, a group of kids, very, very young kids, you know, on their gap years, like graduates straight out of uni who have no sort of skills that they can contribute in, say, rebuilding after, say, a natural disaster. So often the people who live in those communities have to rebuild and it costs them more money and they're actually more affected from it. Um, well, something to, like, end this discussion with a light note um i found there's a the social media surrounding this which uh mocks the concept of voluntourism um humanitarians of tinder is a compilation where people uh, screenshot um you know i guess profiles of people where they have they've gone on their trip overseas and they've they've taken photos and have put it on their tinder profiles as a way to sort of i don't know lure people and use it as a uh, as I'm, a step I'm a, up i'm a good yeah.
5: person you know i uh, I go to Africa, yeah, that, that country over there. You know, yeah. every now and then, um, you know, I, I do I do little things. I'm, I take pictures with little black and brown babies and yeah. stuff like that. I'm
6: sensitive but, and hot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: but also I think one of the things that you just touched on just there about um, using the resources that could otherwise go elsewhere. And Arundhati um, and 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 Karen Zhu talked about this in on in the interview about um, local. Chinese um, teachers not getting an opportunity because of um, um, that specific um, NGO going into China, going to regions in China who don't actually know the language, which is a Mandarin, which is an, a local language in that part of China, and not knowing the cultural context or not knowing um, the, the social or political situation these children are in, and, and taking space that could otherwise go elsewhere. But I think we're, we'll are we we'll wrap up now.
4: Yeah, that was our show for the week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you, Claire, for coming into the show this week. And you can follow Claire on... Um on hashtag, not hashtag, not hashtag, at Claire underscore Land on Twitter, and you can find more information about her book, Decolonising Solidarity. I Um, think you
5: should all purchase the book. It's a very, very good read, (laughs) even though I've not read it yet, but I've heard really good things. If you've got people like Gary Foley, um, Robbie Thor, and other really, really amazing Indigenous activists um, contributing to a book, um, it's going to be a very good read. Uh, and you can follow me at Ahmed Yusuf 10. You can also find the podcast on mixcloud.com forward slash Ahmed Yusuf 10. You can find the show on Facebook uh, forward slash um, racecard show. You can find us on Twitter at The Racecard and also find us on iTunes or the Podcast Republic app for Android users searching racecard. So yeah, listen to all our shows. We've got tons of backlogged shows you can listen to and get all that. Good race, cutness.
4: Yeah, so this is uh, Poppy here and Ahmed, and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus...